Hey, I hope you're excited. You're looking kind of like frozen, so how about a smile? Like God is at work in our midst and uh, bringing things our way, and that's kind of exciting. March is just a couple weeks away, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. You know, in our effort to live a more um, hope-filled life, we've been looking at some of the things, some of the promises that God's made to us in his word about the future. So often, you know... uh, When we think about our relationship with God, we think about where we've been, but really it's more about where we're going and what's going to happen to us in the future as a result of what God has done. And we're looking at these things in the past uh, several months or whatever, uh, really from our perspective, right? We've been looking at what's going to happen in the future, what's going to happen to the human race, Uh, Christ is going to come back and defeat the Antichrist. Death itself is going to be swallowed up in victory. Light is going to overcome darkness. Uh, Satan is going to be locked up and uh, put away in the lake of fire and so on. And so we think about all of these things that are going to happen. And way back in Genesis, at the very beginning, uh, God kind of laid out a plan in Genesis 3.15 as a result of Adam and Eve's fall. And he talked to Satan, and here's what he said. You're familiar with these words, I think. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Scott. God's talking to Satan. And between your seed or offspring and her seed or offspring. I will put enmity, hatred, between the Antichrist, your seed, and my seed, the seed of the woman, which obviously is the virgin birth and a reference to the virgin birth and why the virgin birth is so important and uh, so on, and he's going to bruise your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. You're going to put him on the cross and do your best to eliminate him, but he's going to come back, and he's going to bruise your head and destroy you, and so on. And so uh, this morning, I wanted to kind of look at, not from our perspective, but from God's perspective, when God looks at our world, and God looks down the corridor of time and sees the future, what does he see? How does he see? What does he think? What does it look like from God's perspective? And I want to suggest to you this morning that Psalm 2 um, sort of reiterates and uh, fills in uh, what God said way back in Genesis chapter 3. And so this Psalm, Psalm 2, was written probably a thousand years before Jesus was born, or about 3,000 years ago. But God is looking down the corridor of time, looking at the future. And um, if you think about it, um, you realize that God's perspective might be a little different than our perspective in terms of how he sees things. Now, Psalm 2 is written by David. But you might notice, if you have your Bible, uh, Psalm 3 to 41 all have a superscription which say, this is a Psalm of David. Psalm 2 does not have that. Psalm 2 does not have a superscription that identifies David as its author. But when we go to the New Testament, uh, we find out that actually um, uh, John and Peter were let out of jail and all the people came around, they started praying. And uh, in their prayer, they said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 4, in the New Testament, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then quotes Psalm 2. So there's no question that David is the author of this psalm. 
And why is that, you know, so important? Well, um, it's really important because um, what's written in this psalm is based on a promise that God made to David when he was the king of Israel years and years and years before this. And so um, when we go to the Bible and we think about how to interpret this psalm, we realize that God made an unconditional promise to David way back in Israel's history. He made a a covenant or a deal. And uh, God committed to do what he promised, and he promised that someday David's son would sit on the throne of Israel forever, forever. So if, if you have a Bible and you want to go back, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, let me just read a couple of verses here. Verse 12 says this, uh, God's talking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, okay, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever. And uh, verse 16 says, "And, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God is telling King David, you know, that your seed, your descendant is going to reign over Israel on the throne forever. And so when we think about this and we tie it into the rest of Scripture, also if you go back to verse 10 here in 2 Samuel, um, there's the context of God's comments, right? I'm going to appoint a place for my people Israel and I'm going to plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And then God makes this promise about this ruler that's going to take over the throne. And so uh, this is such an important promise that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's repeated seven times. And I can take the time to kind of go through this, but this is such an important promise that God makes to David um, that it's seven times. And then when we um, go to the New Testament, uh, the very first sentence of the very first chapter of the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, here's what we read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is God telling David years and years ago, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a descendant of King David on the throne over Israel who will rule the world someday from the city of Jerusalem. Now, we've been studying some of the things that, you know, are part of that whole thing as it plays out. The millennial period, I think, is what's being talked about when Christ comes back. And uh, we've seen uh, how he rules the nations. And uh, I think if we were to go back, we'd see that God promised the land of Israel to Abraham and promises the throne of Israel to David and his descendant, who is clearly, ultimately, Jesus Christ. Now, David wasn't a perfect person, but the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And so when we go to Psalm 2, this psalm that David wrote, uh, we find out that there are actually four different voices speaking in Psalm 2. If you have a Bible, you might want to follow along. Um, 
Psalm 2, four sets of three verses each. Uh, Hebrew poetry is really kind of interesting and it's very uh, informative when we kind of see the way this is laid out and written by David. Uh, But notice, uh, if you will, that um, the first voice that comes to us from this psalm comes from the world. This is the world's people, the collective voices of the nations, right? What do they say? And here's what David says, uh, verse 1, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? What's with the nations? Why do the, na- why do the people of the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why do they make plans and work so hard at passing bills and doing whatever that are so vain? You know? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. I wonder if we see the world the way God sees the world. What's really going on in our culture and in the news and so forth? How does God see it? Well, he says, you know, people are rebelling against me, is what God is saying. Why do the people rage? Why do they plot vain things? Um, Verse 3 Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What are the people of the world really all about? From God's perspective, what does he see? He sees them rebelling against himself. Why do they live their lives in such vain ways? Why are they plot? Why do they come together and take counsel? Why do they find people who are like-minded like them and all get together and, and fight against what God created us to be and to do. Um, how does God see it? Well, he says the nations rage. I mean, it's an emotional reaction. They're so angry and they plot and they revolt against authority. And, and notice that it says there are peoples. Why do the nations, plural? This is different ethnic groups across the board. When God looks at the world, what does he see? He sees people working against him, all these different groups. Why? Why why are people giving their lives over to worthless, vain things? Why spend your life on that which is hopeless? Do you really think that we're going to overthrow God, you know, kind of thing? And uh, so God sees this all, and um, the leaders of the earth, uh, according to the psalmist, do two things. Number one, they take a position. They set themselves. They think it through and they decide what they think is important, right? The kings of the earth set themselves. They take a, a posture, a position. And, uh, and then they get together and they find the like-minded people. The coalition of world leaders really isn't about solving the problems of hunger and unrighteousness and injustice and, and all of those kinds of things that on the surface they talk about. When God looks and sees what's happening, when God looks and asks, what's going on in the United Nations? What does he see? He sees people who are raging against him and plotting vain things against him, uh, especially about the future. It's about divorcing themselves from the God who created them and his anointed one. Why? What's the motive? What's the rub? What's the tension? Well, verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want any accountability to our creator. 
We want to be like God. Remember when Satan came into the Garden of Eden and said to Eve, hey, you could be like God. Just do the opposite of what he says. He says, don't eat from the tree. You eat from it, you'll be like him. You decide right and wrong for yourself. And she fell for it. And when God looks at the world and sees the, uh, how that has worked its way into people and goes, you know, the world doesn't want standards. The world doesn't want to define what's right and what's wrong. The world doesn't want accountability, absolutes. You know, people simply want to be their own God, make their own decisions. And God says, what? what's with people? What's all the noise about? And so uh, <clears throat> that's the first voice is what comes to God from the world, how he sees it, what he thinks. The second voice is God. It's his response. And uh, when you start to read God's voice in this psalm, you realize God's not all shook up about the people rebelling. He's not like nervous. He's not anxious. He's not worried. Listen to what it says, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. (laughs) There's an LOL in heaven. Imagine God like looking at our world today and listening to what's going on and watching the news and, you know, and, and understanding what's happening all over the place. What's his reaction? He's like, what am I going to do? No, it's a joke. It's a laugh of ridicule. It's like, what's wrong with these people? I made them and I spoke to them and I created the whole creation for them to enjoy and they're trying to get rid of me. I'm the source of their life, their breath, (laughs) and everything else that they need to survive. I created the world that they live in and so forth. All this posturing and wrangling, all this passing legislation and debates and name-calling, and God laughs. Do we recognize and see through everything this kind of rebellion against God that's going on? Uh, And then look what, What's next, verse 5 and 6? Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Now, we've talked about this called the day of the Lord. It's all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. There is coming a day. You know, lots of people say, well, you know, if God is so righteous, why didn't he do something? There's a lot of things wrong. Why doesn't he? He's gonna. But he's waiting in order that he doesn't desire for anybody to be lost for eternity. He's given us, the church, an opportunity to reach out and bring in as many people as we can under the grace of God, the goodness of God, the forgiveness of God, under the cross, to be reconciled, to be saved from this wrath that's going to come. What does God say he's going to do? He laughs and then he says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And we've seen, it's called the day of the Lord, right? I think if you're a Christian and you believe what the scriptures say, you know what? You're pretty excited about the rapture of the church. Like right before this time, the church is taken out of the earth before God speaks in his fury. Right now, he's speaking in his love, right? Love and power are opposite ideas. You think about it, right? If you're married, whoever loves the most has the least amount of power. You know, I'm just crazy about you, but you're so-so about me. Who's got the power and who's got the love, right? Jesus came the first time with love. He's coming the second time in power. This is the time. Today is the day of salvation. 
Um, because this is what's coming. God says, you know what? People are rebelling against me. There's going to come a day when I'm going to speak in my fury and I'm going to terrify people. I wouldn't want to be terrified by God, right? Um, And then he says this. I think this is the heart of the psalm. Listen to this, verse 6. As for me, God speaking, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. As for me, like I promised David, I have set my king, King Jesus, on Jerusalem's hill, and someday he will reign over the nations when the timing is right. I have set my king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I have set my king. And, um, you know, when you think about this, it doesn't really matter. Um, uh, The rebellious people... It really doesn't matter how strong of an army you gather together. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at the rebellion. It doesn't matter how many experts and government officials and uh, university professors are linked together in opposition. God is so committed and so confident that Jesus will reign over the nations, over the whole earth, that he speaks of it here in verse 6 as an accomplished fact. This isn't like even like someday this might happen. No, no. This is a done deal. I have set my king. It's a done deal. It's in the present tense. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's a done deal. It's going to happen. I wonder if you and I look down the corridor of history and we think just like God thinks. You know what? Someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reign. Do we see what God sees? Do we agree with God when we read this psalm and, and, and join in? You know, do we think of it the same way as God thinks about it? That, hey, this is a done deal. This is going to happen. Am I ready? Am I ready? Am I going to be a part of, uh, you know, the love of God or the wrath of God? The next voice that's heard is Jesus. And uh, verse 7, starting at verse 7. Um, the voice of Jesus, I'll tell you my Father's decree. This is what God has said about me, Jesus, right? He's talking, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, God said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God only has one, only one begotten son, right? Jesus existed eternally. He always was. He's responsible for uh, the creation. But he took on flesh. He became humanized, if that's a word. And uh, he emptied himself, humbled himself, became a spokesman for the world. And uh, verse 8, the next verse says, Ask of me, God, this is a decree. God said, Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. There's coming a day. When God, who owns everything, will entrust it all to Jesus, right? I'll make the ends of the earth your possession. All the nations, just ask me, you know. God decreed, it's his heritage. A heritage, right, is something that you own that you pass on to the next person, right? Um, In the book of Hebrews, uh, the very first verse, uh, I love this, long ago, in many time, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. In the past, God spoke, right? In many ways and in many times, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He, my son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How does the universe stay together? By the word of his power. It's a great thought to have. And so, verse 9, ask of me, God says, this is a decree, I'll give you the nations as your heritage, the ends of the earth is your possession. How are you going to get that to happen? Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. First comes the wrath of God. First comes the day of the Lord. And then comes the peaceful reign of the millennium. How is this going to happen? Well, you can read in Revelation, when Revelation 19, Jesus comes back and eliminates all the opposition, all that's evil, all that's wrong, all that's against God. And uh, God decreed, this is uh, what's going to happen with my son. Now, you know, when you read this in the scriptures and follow these thoughts through the scriptures, you realize this is not gentle Jesus, weak and mild, right? This is let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, finally. Let earth receive her king, whom God said way back to Samuel is going to be a descendant of David. And so the lineage of David is traced all through the scriptures. And then there's the last voice, the fourth voice in this psalm, okay? And it's the last uh, three verses. Here's, uh, I think, maybe the voice of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Some people say, well, it's the voice of David, but it's the so what? Now that we know how God looks at the world, and now that we know what God intends to do through Jesus Christ, so what? What's our response, right? What are we supposed to do? What's the takeaway from this? Now that we know how God sees the world, how should we respond? And notice that these three verses start with this, you know, now, therefore, since we know how God sees the world and what God's going to do through Jesus and how it's going to end, since we know all that, therefore, be wise, And be warned. Be wise. Adjust your thinking to what God is revealing. What is wisdom? Sometimes I heard, uh, I think it was Andy Stanley one time say, you know, wisdom is just being able to connect the dots between the past, present, and future. Wisdom is the ability to connect the dots that what you do today is going to make a radical difference in what's going to happen tomorrow. And that part of how you're living now was the result of decisions you made in the past. And be wise. Adjust your thinking according to God's word. Give the Holy Spirit the freedom to impress upon you the truth that God wants to reveal to us. Don't hold on to your old way of thinking. Don't be a part of the world's system. Make a choice. Take a stand. Set yourselves for God. Right? Therefore... O kings, be wise and be warned. Listen, God's telling us what's going to happen in the future. He's 100% on target. He's never been wrong. You know, there's like, I I said this before, I know it's repetitive, but there's like 300 different prophecies about Jesus' first coming, about Christmas, all of which were fulfilled when Jesus came, every one of them. And there's eight times as many prophecies about Jesus' second coming, all of which will be fulfilled. 
according to what he said. So change the way you think. Be wise. Be warned. Second, serve the Lord. Don't waste your life on trivial things. Right? Serve the Lord. If you know this is what's coming, if you know who's going to be running the world, if you know that you're a subject of his, you want to be in his kingdom, well, serve him. He's got a lot of things going in the world today. Serve the Lord with fear. We're going to be judged on what we did with our lives, right? And rejoice with trembling. I love to say that the truth is in the tension, you know? But I would tell you that serving the Lord results in rejoicing. And that's what this verse is saying. So what do I do in response to what God, how God sees the world and what God says is coming? Well, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then finally, and this is the best, right? Verse 12, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Get close to Jesus. Don't make this an intellectual thing only, but also make it an emotional attachment to this person that you love from your heart. Kiss the sun. Get close to the sun. Be intimate with Jesus as life unfolds and you have the opportunity to live a little bit longer and a little bit longer. Each year, I want to be closer. I want to kiss the sun. I... uh, I had a guy in, in uh, my old church who uh, was Italian, and uh, when, when he became a Christian and he came up to me, he kissed me. I didn't like it. <laughs> I'm like, what is with this? In front of the congregation, right? So I'm like, as we got to be friends, I, could, I always think of this, kiss the sun, kiss Jesus, get close to him, enjoy him, be thankful for him. And if you don't, if you don't get right with Jesus, here's the problem, lest he gets angry with you. He came all the way down. He emptied himself, humbled himself, went to the cross, paid the price, ate the pain for you. And if you don't care, And if you ignore him and you don't appreciate it and you don't kiss the sun, well, he might get angry and you will perish in the way. Remember, he's coming back on the day of the Lord. For his wrath is quickly kindled. He's loving, but he can get angry, right? And then this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So three things. The psalmist says, look, if you know God's perspective, if you know the world's perspective and you know God's perspective and you know what he's going to do about it through Jesus, well, there's three things, the way to respond, right? I, I call them experience the love. Embrace the gospel. Let God love you. He loves you. Let him. He sent Jesus, right? Embrace the love of God. Second, right? Uh, I'm sorry, experience the love of God. Kiss the sun, make it an experience. Let the love of God change the way you are, you know? Experience the love, embrace the truth of God in his word. It's what we do when we come together on Sundays. We want to embrace, we don't want to just hear it and agree with it. Of course you agree with it, it's the truth. 
but you want to embrace it. You want to make it yours. You want to make it your truth. Not just God's truth, but hey, that's my truth. And that's how I'm going to live out the balance of my life. You know, expressing, experience the love, embrace the truth, and enlist to serve. Enlist to serve. Figure out what God has gifted you with. That's what we're going to do with Eric, isn't it? We're going to figure out, you know, is Eric right for our congregation? And we're going to find out how has God gifted him? What kinds of experiences has God put in his life? You know, and so on and so on. That's true of all of us. God has invested in every one of us to make us who we are today. And we all have something with which we can serve his cause. Enlist to serve. Everybody has a ministry. You know, being a pastor, it's, 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 it's not kind of like the Catholic thing where, oh, the pastor. You know, it's just another one of us, and we happen to recognize, wow, he's got some gifts that God has given him, and we want to release him from having to go to work so that he can do full-time what God has gifted him to do. And so we as a congregation that come together, we're going to hire, but it's not hire, it's really something bigger than just hiring somebody. It's saying, I recognize that you have been gifted by God to be a pastor or a missionary or whatever. And we feel like we're going to set you aside to be able to do this for us so that all of us can move forward together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this psalm. I'm so thankful to know how you see all these voices that keep coming up from the world. And I pray that you'll help us to kind of embrace or uh, to endorse the way you see things by us seeing things the same way. That we'll be able to sort of see through the surface and see the motives in people's hearts and realize, Father, that you've put us in a world where people want to get rid of you. And you've entrusted to us the message of the gospel so that we can actually help people understand that you're not interested in holding people's sins against them. That's why you put your son on the cross. You're interested in reconciliation between yourself and us. And that's what you want to give us. And so I pray, Father, that uh, you would help us as we think about this psalm, that your spirit would uh, kind of meld it into our hearts and that your response would be our response and that we would be your ambassadors for Jesus' sake. Amen.